Hey everybody, it's Robert here from Interest Mail. Thanks so much again for tuning in each and every week and uh, following us on uh, Instagram, Facebook, all of our social media through Mentors the Number 4 MIL, and especially for those who are Patreon supporters at patreon.com. Again, thank you for uh, helping us with this, this show and put everything together. If you're not already subscribed to the podcast, you can do that here uh, by um, hitting the subscribe button or hitting the little bell at the top of the screen, and that'll make sure you don't ever miss an episode. And then also, if you're following us on any of the audio versions, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or any of the others, be sure to hit that subscribe button. Leave us uh, some you know, information down below. Let us know what you think of each of the episodes. Uh, we sure would appreciate the feedback. In this episode, we have Sophie Hilaire, part two. You're going to really enjoy this one. This is where it starts off with her talking about some of the psychedelic treatment that she received for her trauma, but then she goes into what she's also done to continue, um, you know, supporting her trauma by ways of summoning Mount Everest, Denali, some of the uh, climbing that she's done in different ways, and of course, travel across the globe, um, and how that's really helped her with her sleep, and how the sleep then has really helped her in her everyday life. So. Uh, be sure to tune in to this episode. And again, thanks each and every one of you for, for watching the show, for listening in. And uh, be sure to hit that like and subscribe button. And again, leave us a, a message. Let us know what you think. Previously on episode 333 with Sophie Hilaire. DMZ on the other side from the North Korea side. I what? How do you, oh, how do, do you tell. <laughs> It was a little weird because they would take your passport and not give it back to you till the end of the trip. And no they would way. the North Korean visa was a separate piece of paper that they would just like put in there. But when you left, they took it back and it's like the whole thing never happened. What is this middle name on your passport, Sung Bin? What is that all about? Because my middle name is Korean. Mm -hmm. my, you know, my first and last name are, are, you know, more like my dad French side, but my middle name's Korean. So they saw that in there and they're like, we just need you to sign this waiver. It says you're not gonna try to go find your long lost relatives. Yeah, I think for me, like the biggest real, finally like breaking through that was many years later and going, yeah. um, I went and, and did ayahuasca in Peru. For oh, did week. you really? But nice. this is, um, Tell us about that. Uh, yeah, so this was back in 2018. Okay. And um, I, I was there for a week, <laughs> like between work projects. And uh, so I only had a week, but they like you to go for seven days, or sorry, 10 days, but I only had seven. So I did four ayahuasca ceremonies and uh, it was kind of the classic thing. I mean, it was out in the middle of nowhere. Um, you know, I had so many mosquito bites that it looked like I had a full body rash. And, uh, but it was, it was the full experience and you're out there and you just do it at night and it goes on all night long. And, um, it was really intense. I like, not all the ceremonies were the same, but the one that stands out to me the most was, uh, so ayahuasca teaches you a lot about empathy and, um, and I went there with the intention of, I just want to work on my relationship with myself, whatever this is. Like, I, I, I don't even know what I'm seeking or searching for, but, but whatever that is, I know has something to do with me. And what ended up happening in my second ceremony was all of a sudden I was looking at myself, but I wasn't myself. I was actually my mom. And no so I became my mom and I was looking at me and I felt, and I, I felt what she feels when she looks at me. And it was so intense because 
I've been hearing my whole life, you know, that, um, so my mom grew up very poor in Korea. For her generation, it was like a third world country. When we think of Korea now, it's, you know, yeah. plastic surgery and top the of the line electronics. The yeah. yeah. But, but back then it was very poor. And yeah. so, um, you know, my life growing up upper middle class in Ohio, even though I thought it was like lame compared to New York City or something. I mean, to her, that was like the creme de la creme, you know, how the other half lives. And so, um, so I was really fortunate to have been born into that world, but I didn't know anything but that. And so, um, I, I, I didn't really have an appreciation for what my mom had been through and understanding why, you know, I deserve to be tortured for whatever, you know, these different circumstances that we were born into. But when I saw myself from her eyes, and at the time I was working um, as a consultant at McKinsey, and my life was like not fun. I was flying for work every week. I was stressed out, with, uh, keeping up with client demands and all of that. And um, and that's you know why I felt like I needed to go into the jungle to go figure things out. Um, and but when I saw myself through her eyes, I just saw like everything she wanted for herself. She, I mean, I complain about flying in a plane every week, but I mean. To her, all she sees is flying first class twice a week. This is amazing. Or uh, going to clients and like having to prepare for me. And she, she just, you know, to her that would have been like someone, someone admiring you for what your brain has to offer. Like these are things that you know she were never even um, opportunities for her. So, um, and I just felt such a deep appreciation for that in the moment, and you know, forgave her for you know the, all the things. And uh, so that was super powerful for me, but still you know after that i stayed stayed on the path and consulting for years and it just progressively still got worse and worse and worse and even though i healed this thing with my mom i still hadn't figured out you know why was i still so miserable and i hadn't figured out the thing with myself and that didn't happen until years later different plant medicine ceremony where um oh man this was kissing like, the toad or was uh, it ibogaine <laughs> it was dmt nice okay, yeah not to be trifled with yeah i guess do we even call that plant medicine i guess partially um but the, it uh yeah i i was all i saw was this fire and there was this silo in the middle of it and there was a fire going on in the inside of the silo and there was this window and i just saw this like figure in the window and it was screaming down into the flames to just like go harder work like faster just like yelling out all these demands and and i just knew instinctively that like okay that's my ego up there screaming at me just on fire and uh Oh, but guess what? Like the ego actually looks so delicate. Like all you gotta do is like flick that guy into the fire and then he, she is dead. And then the fire's gonna go out. Cause the only thing that's keeping this going is like all this screaming. And I just realized, oh my gosh, no one else is here. It's just the ego. Like at the time I was, um, you know, it, COVID had happened. So I was back at my parents' house and, and still working this job now 20 hours a day, seven days a week. Cause we were all remote. And I was, I was actually getting really bitter about like, why am I this way? Like, did you guys make me this way? This type of person who just like kicks her own ass all day long for what? I hate this job. Um, I mean, I, I'm feeling a little hard, but there were good things about the job. But at the time I was just totally miserable. And um, so I was mad at my parents thinking, okay, I'm gonna blame you guys. You guys are the reason why I work so hard and at stuff I don't care about. Um, and then I thought, okay, maybe it's my, my boss's fault. I hate this team. Like this guy's such a jerk. Okay. He's the reason I'm miserable. But in that moment, the only reason I was miserable, I just knew it was me. It was my ego. And the so the destruction of ego, that's what everybody talks about when uh, they talk about plant medicine therapy. Uh, I mean, but of all the ceremonies I've ever done, I never just like saw it. I just saw it in that window and it's so clearly and just knew no one had to explain this to me. I knew what it was about. And then right after that, I had another vision of me as this old lady. 
I was this old lady in my sunset years, and I saw my whole life on this timeline. And this timeline, uh, it was like a movie, like real, I guess. And I saw that on that movie reel, this time in consulting was like this narrow little piece of it. And all of the rest of it afterwards was so beautiful. And I thought, oh my gosh, I'm over here complaining about this job and everything. But look, I'm at the end of like actually such a short blip of what my entire life is. I mean, at the time it felt all consuming, like, oh, every day is like this. Oh my gosh, let me make it to Friday. Oh no, I got to work all weekend. Oh my gosh, Monday, I'm exhausted again. And it just felt like I couldn't see out of that. And then this just gave me the perspective of, oh, okay, this is almost over. And it's over the moment I decide it's over. (laughs) And like the next Monday I went into work, I was so chilled out. I just realized, oh, like this is the, all of the misery I'm creating is all, you know, self-imposed. And, and this is, I'm only here because I'm choosing to be. And actually the second this really sucks, like I will just leave, which is exactly what I did. But it, it, that wasn't even for like another year and a half later. So were you driven because of the way you grew up and everything. Cause I can tell you for me, I didn't realize that as well until much later in life. And I had a life coach that actually kind of started working with me. And I started realizing that my issues were actually more like daddy issues. And mm-hmm. since that he was always, you know, driving, pushing me saying, I'm not going to make anything out of my life and those types of things that caused me to like want to overachieve to the mm-hmm. point where I was leaving family, friends, everything behind in the dust because I was so driven in a career. Mm. So it sounds like there's a little bit of that, but also just something else. I mean, so did you ever like feel like it wasn't just the ego, but there might've been deeper issues that came out of this um, experience as well? Well, I think part of it was, you know, I was, I mean, I, I saw in the ayahuasca ceremony, my life, I wasn't living it for me. That's why I felt so disconnected. Gotcha. It was, okay. it was what my mom wanted. She had implanted into me, like, go right. do these things. Cause right. I got to feel like my cells lived on to do these things that basically, I mean, there's this Carl Jung quote, I'm going to mess it up a little bit, but it's basically like the, nothing will impact a child more than the unlived life of their parents. Mm. Ouch. That's <laughs> so true. That's and so that was just what I was doing unconsciously. Yeah. I mean, look yeah. look at me. Like I wanted to just, you know, probably even back then I wanted to live in a van and go do whatever, be an artist and, and all of that. But I ended up on this other very, you know, different path, which has been, you know, meant to be in plenty of ways, but it wasn't, it just wasn't what my soul wanted to go do. It was what kind of what my um, ancestry was like, kind of, you know, the, yeah. the steering me to go do. Um, so I think, Part of it was, yeah, just that kind, that level of achieving. It wasn't for me. It was to get it was to get love, because you know, love when I was growing up was conditional on performance, <laughs> and uh, there's only there's a finite amount to go around, and it's whoever is the most impressive, you know, is going to be the one who receives that. And so I grew up believing, okay, if I want to be loved, if I want to be worth something, I have to make myself the most valuable. And I was. I mean, I could never be the, you know, the favorite for more than about 30 seconds before like some, something else was just some reason, you know, I would be found to be the scapegoat again. And so I think after I left home, I just carried that with me of like, okay, I, I have to be kind of like a shiny object wherever I go in order for people to want to be around me or for me to be worth anything. Now did that tra- attract a lot of, obviously it attracted some negative attention from the cadre, mm-hmm, right? Exactly. But like once you got into the professional world, did they see that as like an asset or a liability? I th- the professional world, I think they always saw it. I would say mostly assets still. Yeah. Because I think there, 
especially, you know, with business school applications and then consulting, recruiting, um, they're looking for people who are well-rounded and, you know, they, they don't want someone who just like crushes their SAT or GMAT. They're looking for someone who has all these, you know, other dimensions to them. And so I think I've always kind of done a good job of like doing a little bit of everything. Um, well, mostly just because like I actually am endlessly curious about a million things and I don't think there's enough years in my life to do everything I want to do, but I've, I've like, you know, I'll take a hobby pretty far for three years and then move on to the next thing. Um, so that, that was always like a feather in my cap for that, but it also, it didn't necessarily help me like leaving McKinsey for two months to go climb Everest did not help my career. Um, I had to, you know, find a team and time everything. So like I wasn't optimizing for career and progression ever there. I was always optimizing for when can I, okay, what's, what's the team that's going to let me to actually work out during the day and have some time to do that. And, uh, then be able to finish on exactly this date. Cause I got the, I'm going to go climb these mountains in Ecuador. Or I'm going to go climb Aconcagua. Or I'm going to go to Everest. And so I was trying to fit McKinsey around my life so that they could fund my lifestyle, which was, I mean, like a fine. That's just the way I chose to do it, which is not how most people do it. I mean, they go there. People want to get promoted. People want to get, you know. There's nothing wrong with finding a gig that that funds the life you want to live. It's kind of like in the army, you know, like getting paid to work out, which I really miss that. (laughs) So was this all these, well, I got two, uh, two big things I want to go to. So first let me go to the mother. Did you ever sit down with your mom and talk after these things? How was that? Uh, really powerful, really powerful. I mean, I'll never forget the first time we just talked to each other, like mother and not even mother and daughter, like just two people, two humans. Um, and you know, she was starting to open up and it was really, um, it was, I mean, I was so moved and and felt like things were moving in a really positive direction, but, um, it it hasn't really been linear, I would say. And it's hard because people come back from these psychedelic experiences and they're, you know, they feel such a shift and they're so excited to tell everyone, you know, and like go make amends and, you know, write letters to people. and And everyone else is like. Yeah, exactly. Like they didn't go through the experience. They're kind of like, huh? And so I'm always, you know, whenever I go to these things and they're facilitated, there's always, you know, you're talking to whoever the facilitator is. Oh my gosh, here's what I'm learning. And I'm so excited. And they're always like, pump the brakes, (laughs) like give yourself like two weeks or a month or something afterwards and then see how you feel. And um, I didn't always, (laughs) I didn't always wait that long before I like went around and had the conversations. But Um, but yeah, I think there's been, you know, even like my mom has, you know, we've, we've gone through some, you know, experiences and journeys and things like that together. And, uh, but without the reintegration piece, which is so important, um, I think, yeah, it's just been hard to kind of, and, and being so far away from each other and, you know, things, there's personality disorders at play and things here. So there's a lot, uh, there's a lot, I feel like that I'm up against, but this is going to be a lifelong thing. I think that I'm navigating, but at this point it feels like, um, my, as far as like me getting right with myself, I've never felt this far along that path. I don't think I'm done, but I, that's really the only thing I think I can But control. are you ever done, like, really no, working on yourself? definitely not. Definitely well, not. Like, at the end of the day, like, if you're, if you're done working on yourself, then you're probably not very good person. So, like, if you have the <laughs> smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room <laughs> yeah, type of exactly, thing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Which leads me to, like, the, you know, you talked about Everest, and we can talk about, you know, was it Kilimanjaro, or did you ever do that? You didn't do that one. Okay. I climbed Denali, no. though, right? I did. Okay. So, I mean, some of those things, was it more of 
you're still applying the same thing, but maybe in a different way. Yeah. So <laughs> again, it was kind of like, I feel like I was at least moving in the trending in the right direction. So yeah. at first I was just all about running as hard and as fast as I could pounding pavement with as heavy of stuff. Like that was like, you know, where I felt like I could really just go all out and exercise. And I was doing multi-day adventure races at the time too. And Oh, CrossFit. I actually owned a couple gyms and was certified doing that. Like got really you into owned a couple gyms. I mean, I missed that part in your bio uh, and everything. I mean, wow, I'm, really? I'm like, really not. I, I can't even, it's, it's like shameful to talk about. I mean, I barely you're do 35 years <laughs> old and I swear you've lived three lifetimes oh, already, at least. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm, I'm definitely in the most fun one right now, I think. But, um, <laughs> definitely in the room. Yeah, definitely yeah. the most fun one for sure. <laughs> no, no, just my phase of life right now is so good. We've talked offline a little bit about you. Um, there's certain places that you have climbed. One of those being well the the tallest mountain in the world so can you kind of go into that just a just a skosh yeah um well i got into mountaineering fairly recently 2017 i yeah. started with baker and denali and mm-hmm. kind of went from there to um everest and aconcagua and other other big mountains but yeah to me mountaineering was so appealing because i'd come from this world of lots of distance running and marathons so i had a strong endurance base and then CrossFit is kind of unavoidable in that era of the army. I don't know what's still going on with army PT, but uh, I owned a couple CrossFit gyms and that, you know, just moving heavy weight and carrying heavy things up mountains. So I wanted to, that, that was something that I really enjoyed from CrossFit. And then, um, yeah, at this point, you know, 2017 or sorry. Yeah. 2017, I just graduated from business school from Wharton. And at that point I'd been two years out of the military. So I hadn't really been on that feeling of being on a team in the military, like a high stakes team where you're working towards a common goal that's like a big deal, it's a life or death situation. And mountaineering seemed to have all of those ingredients. And so, you know, you're, you're going for long distances. I mean, Everest is two months long. A lot of people don't know that. Denali's a month. A lot of these yeah. are, are takes a long time. Um, and then, you know, you're carrying different levels of weight. Certain countries, you'll have a Sherpa, sometimes you won't. Um, and then, yeah, just being on the team, like you get so close with these people. You're only like five people on a team or something. You get to know everything about them. And uh, and I think a lot of people just end up like opening up. The higher the altitude, people just start saying things that I don't know if they're even telling like their families these the things. The oxygen, lack of oxygen. <laughs> yeah, so I loved mountaineering. It got pretty addicting for a little while there. Like anytime I wasn't at work, I was pretty much on a mountain. So I would go work, a, you know, a project, maybe it'd be three months long, but I knew like, hey, we gotta wrap up by this date because Sophie is getting on a plane and starting an expedition, going to Ecuador or whatever to do a mountain. So, um, yeah, in that way, I didn't really, I mean, it, it, it was, it was great because I feel like I processed a lot of things up in the mountain. And I got, oh man, I just got the best sleep up there. That was something that, um, actually after I came back from from Everest, I, I was an insomniac and I'd never been one before. I think I had like sporadic issues with sleep and never like this. And I think the problem was life was so good on the mountain. I mean, a lot of people like felt sorry for me or felt scared for me when I was on Everest, but I was, I don't think I've ever been better. I didn't even want to come back. Um, <laughs> it was, you know, two months, no laptop, 
I mean, laptop was left back at home. Um, no, you know, phone. I mean, I had my phone on me, but it wasn't really like I was using it up there. And, you know. There wasn't any towers there, were there? Because, I mean, did you get any reception? Uh, no reception, but actually each year there's, I think, a little bit more Wi-Fi available. Is that it's right? The, it's the most expensive Wi-Fi of your life. <laughs> but, <laughs> but if you want it, it's there. I mean, it's not at every camp. It's just yeah. base camp pretty much. Yeah. But, um. Yeah, but I I didn't know life like that because, I mean, similar to most veterans, it was just straight from, you know, my life in high school with my family, which is very controlling, to the military, which was pretty much like they tell you what you're doing in mm -hmm. your free time, too. And then um, going to business school. In business school, I had a little time to think, but this was the first time I really had two months ever of just not working. And my only mission was to get up and down this mountain and have some fun while I was there. So when I came back from that experience and like sleeping on ice for 12 hours a night and just being out in like every day, my eyes were seeing the most beautiful scenes that like you can't you can't pay money to see this stuff like you have to put in the work to go there and be able to view it and experience it. Um, so I come back from that and I'm back to work on Monday, put the suit on, put the heels on, open up the laptop, thousands of emails. Like, I was like, what? This is, it just, the contrast was so extreme. And I think my, my, I don't know, my soul was just like, okay, I think you, you've seen too much. Like, it's it just, like a bit of a snap <laughs> at that point. You're yeah. like, all right, we're done. Yeah. yeah. You're, you're going to have to pay for this somehow. Totally. And I mean, I wasn't ready to, I didn't even think I could ever leave my job because I didn't know what I wanted to do next yet. I thought, okay, I can't leave this job because these consulting jobs, like one of the, I mean, one of the reasons I did it, one of the reasons a lot of people do it is because everyone knows it's going to suck. It's going to be intense, but you're going to learn a ton. And after that, you pretty much write your ticket and you go like, this is your, hopefully your launch pad for like the last time you pay your dues. And then you get to start like cashing in on all these investments for the future. And, but I didn't, I was like frozen. I didn't know what I wanted to do next because honestly, every next, a next step on that path was just felt like a death sentence to me, like yeah. not anything I personally wanted to do. And I guess it's my own fault for getting all the way to this point to just realize I don't even want to be here or anywhere that comes next. But, um, but yeah, so I was just kind of frozen at this job, couldn't sleep, taking all these sleep medications and I didn't want to be on them forever. Uh, I didn't even want to be on them for much longer because I already felt myself slowing down in all these weird ways during the day. And um, so yeah, I had to go work on my insomnia which I think this is something a lot of vets struggle with, but I had never heard of someone doing this to work on their insomnia. Yeah. So you got to explain that. What did you do? How did, how did that come about? Yeah. So, well, I, I kind of made this up with um, my sleep doctor. I had been talking to a sleep doctor for a year. I was like, Oh, I'm still having these issues. And, and she said, well, you know, it seems like you're never going to be able to work on this unless you're not working. And I said, well, I can't leave my job. And she said, well, I could write you a two week thing so that, you know, you're to, so that you can go get a sleep baseline. And it's like an excusal from work, like a medical note. And uh, I mean, does that not sound like the ultimate sham? <laughs> like, I, like, like, like how how could anyone in the military ever get away with something like that? Even at, at McKinsey, it's like I didn't want I mean, no, no one really knew for the most part, but it wasn't anything. I, it was so shameful. Like, oh, I'm just going to go sleep for two weeks and get paid for it because, you know, this is medical leave. But oh, my God, it was the most important thing I've ever done. And I'm so happy I did it. And uh, it took me literally a year to work up the courage to like be like, all right, I'm going to submit this shameful paperwork to not even like my boss wouldn't even know. It was just like the back back office people would be seeing this. And maybe they say a million things like that all the time. I had so much like personal shame to get over to get to that point. But I knew I needed to work on this. And I thought, OK, 
if work is the reason why I'm like this, I think work was an aggravator. I don't know if it was the reason. I chose the work, but I thought, okay, like then I don't feel so bad about f- fixing this while I'm still working here. I'm, before I get dumped out, kind of like the army spits people yeah. out, like you know, just yeah. broken. Like I'm gonna fix this before I leave uh, this this firm. So I went and did it. But what I made up was my my sleep doctor said, okay, since I don't have sleep apnea, it was just generalized anxiety, which is why I couldn't sleep. Um, they didn't need to hook me up to a bunch of machines and have me there in person. Instead, I could just go get a sleep baseline on my own. And it was just a matter of like this very, you know, this chart that you fill out. And every night, you know, you have a goal of what time you want to go to bed and then when you're going to wake up. And no matter what, you stick to that. And if you can't fall asleep, you know, it's like, okay, I want to go to bed at nine and be waking up at six. Um, so at nine o'clock I go, well, you have, you have to do a lot of things leading up to nine o'clock yep. with the blue light and the, you know, eating and when you stop drinking mm-hmm. water and all the things that you know you're supposed to do, but you kind of are like, well, this seems like such a small thing. Like I got so strict on that. And, um, and, and then when you're up, you're up and you just kind of exhaust yourself if you didn't get as much sleep that night and just go on to the next day. But so you could do this anywhere. I mean, obviously at the time I was living in my van and I could have just parked my van wherever and done it or maybe gotten a hotel or something. Maybe that's what a normal person would have done. But I thought, no, I want to be back in nature. That was the last time I slept amazing was when I was sleeping on ice and Everest. I was sleeping 11, 12 hours a night with nothing and just, and, and probably at a time where plenty of other people might, I mean, there were avalanches outside and stuff like things were stressful, but that was some good sleep. And I really just think it's because I was outside. So I drove out to the spot in Montana and I just, I didn't even know where I was going to go. I was just like, I just know I'm going to find it. It's going to be in this region. <laughs> and I found it. It was along this river. It was so beautiful. There were almost like, I could hear people sometimes, but I almost didn't see anyone. And that was my goal. I just wanted to be this human wild creature in the woods with like other wild creatures around, you know, animals and things. But like, that was it. And I just wanted to, like no cell phone reception out there. I didn't have, you know, couldn't open my computer, do anything with that. It was all just, I had a stack of books that I knew I'd been putting off and there was some journaling and some thinking that I knew that I needed to do. And then just long nature walks that I would go do and I would go bathe in this river. It was very, uh, I don't know, maybe it's like what people used to do a thousand years ago, but, um, but it was, it was so good. And just being out there for those two weeks, it was not only, you know, the reading of the books and thinking about things. I also, um, I had some very important conversations with myself and I think this is like the stillness and the, the real breakthroughs that I think we all avoid with all these different distractions. And we, I don't know, maybe this is just me, but I think I've seen other people do it too, whether it's, you know, disassociate through alcohol or other substances, or maybe it's just keep yourself busy with work, be a workaholic. So you never have a second to pause and think. And for all these years, I've been just trying to outrun myself and just thought, okay, as long as I keep this perpetual motion going, then I'll never have to sit there and feel these things and like have it catch up to me. But out there, like I ran right straight towards it finally. And I said, okay, I'm just going to sit here. I'm going to do nothing for, for two weeks um, and see what comes up. And so I had some conversations with myself in the mirror. I mean, that might sound kind of weird, but it was amazing. And I, you know, just kind of, it just started and it just went from there. And I, a big theme that came up that just naturally happened was I realized I needed to forgive myself for all these things that I had been either judging myself for or things that, um, you know, I had taken on that were never mine to take on and just been carrying this all along. And there was just some big release. I mean, so much crying. It's not even like a conversation. It was just all, all within me, these things that needed to come up. And 
uh, and then it just started happening on its own. Like there was even, oh, there's one scream that came out of me that was this primordial scream that I'd heard a couple times before in my life, but it was usually like a widow at a funeral or something. And it's like that type of scream where most of the times I think when you hear people screaming, like they're screaming because they, part of them wants to release something, but they're also aware that someone else is gonna hear it. So because of that, they either like hold back a little bit or maybe they like, it sounds a little bit performative, but this was like a scream that it was not even me. Like this, I it, this was like an ancestor or something coming through me. I know that sounds crazy, but <laughs> this was not my scream. And it, it came out and oh, something happened when that scream left my body. <laughs> but this is, I mean, I tell this because I think you know, sometimes people see my life now in the van. They're like, oh, you're so carefree. You don't have kids. You don't have this house. Like, so easy for you. Uh, I wish I could work on my, you know, my my demons and stuff like that, too. But the most powerful thing that I did to, like, work on my that demon that left my body, whatever that was, was literally just doing nothing in the woods for two weeks. And I know even that might be luxury because some people have families who need them every day and like bills that need to get paid and maybe they don't have a job that would let them take two weeks of medical leave to go do something like this but um but i mean maybe it doesn't have to be two weeks but some version of just sit still with yourself and stop trying to like you know find ways to distract yourself from the pain like just actually sit with it and feel it and then just i don't know let these let these things come out i'm not the best at explaining this probably a therapist would be much better but <laughs> it works it works <laughs> no but i i think there are a lot of veterans like you're talking about that struggle from um lack of sleep i mean mm -hmm. being you know the flip the switch is flipped on all the time they mm -hmm. they can't like shut it off and mm -hmm. Um, they're struggling with that. And I think you had very similar type of experiences and this is the way you were able to find it. And like you were saying, there may, there may not be an opportunity you can do that for two weeks, but maybe there's a way that you can do that in over a period of time or find a physician that can work with you to, to figure out the the patterns, you know, how to write it down, how to, how to journal, there's how to go through that. Something to that though, sleeping in nature and like the human a reset our circadian yeah. rhythm i think yes. when you sync up with the sun and the moon yes. there's something about that's just like healthier yeah i always sleep better when i camp most people yeah. say they hate camping but like you put me in a tent with a sleeping bag it's so much better good to go man i'm gonna be sawing logs real quick <laughs> <laughs> and, and I, like sleeping in the house like any little thing wakes me up about, yeah and i'm out in nature it just it just works i get it yeah. yeah but you you finally found um or at least you landed upon kind of an anchor location and stuff out in kentucky and i mean you're passing on your way through here coming from down to south florida mm -hmm. down the keys and such and then headed up and um so how did you end up discovering this this place because i want to talk yeah. a little bit about it and what you've done there oh my little slice of heaven so <laughs> I so when I was in my van like circa 2021 I was hardcore looking for land to homestead on and I had narrowed it down to I, I really like Montana I mean learned how to le stopping an insomniac there it was a big deal for me um, so Montana and Idaho is where I thought okay this would be a perfect place to find some raw land and build a little homestead and learn how to do construction I mean I, I was very much I've been on this path lately of wait I feel so overeducated with the grad school and you know, undergrad and all of that, but like, I don't have useful life skills. Like I can't build things. I can't, you know, make electricity and those things kind of work. And so, um, yeah, so that's why I was, I was drawn towards homesteading and having to forcing myself to learn construction and things like that. Um, but I couldn't find anything out in Idaho and Montana. It was actually like nothing really was quite right. And it was all quite expensive. Everything had like doubled in the past year. 
So, and then my godson's family, actually. So my godsons were back in Kentucky and their mom, Danielle, she and I have been friends since West Point. She actually um, had been like, she was a year ahead of me. She helped me get onto the fencing team after I got kicked out of the crew team. And she also was the one, like my mentor, trying to like shepherd me through the whole EOD process because she had been EOD. Um, and then her husband, RJ, they had met at West Point and RJ and I were deployed together in Afghanistan. He was actually the one who pulled me on to uh, their team to do the night work um, as a, a female agent team leader for, for their platoon in the 101st. So... Between those two, they had two boys, Ty and Kale, who are my godsons. And um, admittedly, like I would see them like maybe once a year, every 18 months. I mean, Kentucky wasn't really like a place I was, you know, passing through much when I was in the army and living in New York in that phase of life. But um, and they said, well, OK, we know you're trying really hard to find some land out in Idaho, Montana. But like we got this hunting land. It's 102 acres, 45 minutes from where we live. Love to see you more. Uh, we only use it two weeks out of the year to deer hunt. And you could just, you know, there's already a shed on there. You could convert it into something to live in and park your van there and do whatever you want with the land and you know, do your homesteading thing. And I was like, oh, okay, let me check it out. Cause Kentucky, Idaho. I mean, back then I just thought like, well, I grew up in Ohio. Kentucky kind of sounds like Ohio. To me, it feels like quaint and lame. But <laughs> it's not metal like the Rockies. Uh, yeah. yeah. But I went, I went and visited and it blew my mind. It felt yeah. like this land felt like heaven. It was like a Thomas Kincaid painting. It was almost yeah. cheesy. It was so beautiful. <laughs> it was, it's right along this creek that I call the Crick. That's what I call the whole land is the Crick. And so it's got like water there. It's got multiple ponds. There's, you know, otters, deer, foxes, raccoons, like all this wildlife running around. Um, There's big sections of the land that are cleared because it used to be a tobacco farm back in the day. And it's just gorgeous. There's even a little waterfall in one part of it, like certain times of year. I was like, wait, really? This is just here? You're just gonna like, let me be here? They're like, yeah, go for it. So I was like, okay, well this is, I'm glad nothing worked out before because now I still have money to put into this. <laughs> so um, so yeah, so that's, it kind of just fell into my lap. And so for the last year, I've been converting the existing shed that was there um, into a tiny home. And I say tiny home, it's like 1100 square feet with two lofts. It's a big shed. Um, it's going to be really nice. And I'm going to still keep my van Sage there, um, but she's going to be underneath like a covered thing that's going to, you know, hopefully be diverted for rainwater catchment system. And um, I've got like big plans for the farming area. I've never had a dog before even. So like... You're thinking lo- about getting one? Well, I wanted to get a livestock guardian dog, but um, it's, it, I mean, that's so far out. First things first, like I'm going to get four chickens for... um for have this. eggs. Yeah, well, totally. And I really want, I, mean, I want like all the different colored eggs. <laughs> it's just so pretty. Um, but Artistic yeah. side's coming so you back want like, You want like cows or would you rather have like uh, sheep or goats? or? Oh. Then, then you don't get a chance to travel as much because you got to maintain saying. them. This is the trade-off. Yeah. Is like, But when you're in a van for that long, every van lifer gets to the point where they're, they just want to put down roots. They're tired of right. having to move in every once in a while dealing with some kind of inconvenience. Like you just want to like put roots down somewhere. And for me, I just... I wanted to like get to know a few trees on my property, like instead of just, you know, seeing nature in all these different places, like I wanted to like spend time in one place and really connect with whatever that land is. And, you know, all this energy that I used to put into PowerPoint presentations, I want to put that into my land and I want to see that like come back to me and, and just see this cycle with my godsons and everything that I'm like cultivating on this land. So, um, so yeah, that is the trade-off though. And I feel, you know, even this, like I've been there since April, mostly until 
December, I was mostly on the land. I, mean, I took a break to go to Burning Man, took a break to go to different festivals in my van or a couple weeks here and there. But for the most part, I was there working on that project and I definitely felt it like, ooh, like Sophie feels like not as Sophie right now. There's a part of me that kind of felt like I needed, I don't know, maybe it's even just the the freedom of being anonymous when you're in a van where no one knows who you are in any of these towns. Sometimes you'll have conversations with people and it's nice, but there's no just no expectations of anything it's just so easy and um yeah so i missed the adventure of seeing new things too i mean last winter i was you know massaging whales in baja during like when they were traveling very cool video i actually shared that on our page today oh, so yeah that's so nice yeah <laughs> on the, uh, our stories or whatever yeah that was so magical yeah it's like the one place that one time of year where um, the gray whales specifically are not afraid of humans only for like that month of February and they'll come up to the boats and they really want your attention and they'll be offended if you don't give it to them and the moms will push their babies up to the to the boats to introduce them to humans for the first time and it's wild the second they leave that bay it's like they don't want anything to do with us but um, but yeah so I was doing stuff like that and then I'm um, in Kentucky for a long time doing the same kind of thing watching this you know this shed turn into a home which is rewarding but it's also kind of like it, it just wasn't anything like what I had in van life before, yeah. you know, zipping around, seeing gorgeous, stunning nature all the time. So I kind of got that back out of my system this winter where I was like, okay, starting January, you know, I'll go up north, did Vermont and then Montreal. And that was a mistake because it was negative 24 degrees. <laughs> but um, yeah, mistakes were made. But then I, I got my mind on right and I head on down to Key West and I didn't even realize you could drive all the way to Key West. I just learned that. So <laughs> drove all the way to Key West and now I'm making my way back up. But now I'm feeling like reset and ready to go back into, um, you know, finishing up this shed, getting the farm kicked off. And I'll still leave like international every once in a while. Like this fall, I'm going to go to the Himalayas again, but actually the Indian Himalayas and my friend Miriam and I, uh, we were we we both contributed this book called wilder journeys that's coming out um and we it's it's all about humans having transformative experiences in nature so i wrote a chapter about summit day on everest and how i feel like that experience led me to where i am today um and so par for part of just you know spreading the message of the book we're gonna go have a, a great time hiking and trekking the indian himalayas and we're not gonna have guides or anything though this time we're really just gonna kind of tough it on our own and see how it goes the altitude's not, it's like five thousand meters nothing like eight thousand but um but yeah really excited for that so i i still feel like there are other parts of my soul that need attention it can't just be homesteading and like cows and donkeys and more and more and more like probably something i could still be able to leave and it, like chickens you know danny will watch them four <laughs> chickens you know, i could leave those at her house but yeah. probably not five or more you know so we'll see well you've been able to like still keep a job uh, just for those that are listening and wondering like how are you able to fund this lifestyle i mean you've been able to find employment that allows you that kind of flexibility and mm -hmm. And kind of helps you keep your balance of what you're looking for, which is what you were struggling with in the very beginning, mm -hmm. you know, with McKinsey. You, you couldn't live that. It was funding your lifestyle, but yet it just wasn't, you'd come back and it just wasn't the right fit. Well, I feel like it was definitely funding my lifestyle and my lifestyle was quite expensive. Those, I mean, Everest costs $70,000 just for Everest. And, oh my gosh, does it really? I, I mean, had no clue. It's actually a lot more than that because no one just goes straight to Everest. You have to get all the gear. You have to do all these prerequisite mountains. So it's like, some of those expeditions are upwards of ten thousand dollars, and the gear is well, a lot. What prereqs for the mountains? Like, um, like a okay, you could, if you go with the seventy thousand dollar company, mm -hmm. like adventure consultants who pioneered guiding on Everest, they're amazing. Then 
you know, they're going to want to see that you went somewhere really high, like maybe like Aconcagua, 7,000 meters and nothing crazy happened. They're going to want to see that you can carry heavy stuff. That would be Denali. You go for, yeah. you know, a month carrying 100 pounds. Um, they're going to want to see that you've obviously been on snow and it's not just kind of I mean, if you do Aconcagua, most of it isn't snow. So they want to know you've been on crampons, you've done, you know, so yeah. I'd say a lot of people do it as part of the seven summits and that's like their seventh summit or their sixth. Maybe they'll do Vincent in Antarctica after, but I actually was never really, I felt, I never really felt compelled to do the seven summits. There's just random mountains I feel like doing. So I just go do those. It, it just turned out like I could have done Everest and then I just realized, okay, well, I got the prereqs financially. I can take out a little USAA loan. It wasn't a little loan, but <laughs> USAA <laughs> loan. And uh, and I can, you know, train. I, I can make this happen with work. It's insane, but like, it's just, I'm on the treadmill the second we leave the, leave the client side. I'm doing all my work from my phone for the next hours. Um, but sorry, your question was, <laughs> <laughs> what how, how about? do you now fund your lifestyle? Yeah. And okay, stuff, yeah. you know, so because, McKinsey sorry. was funding that. Yeah, it was expensive, but now, I mean, when I was living in my van and still McKinseying, yeah, it was, I mean, I was getting paid like the salary that you sustain, sustain me in New York city, but I was spending a little bit of money on gas and food and that was it. Um, so my my costs, you know, were just, I bought my van in cash for like $29,000, which, you know, would have been six months rent in New York. Um, and from there on out, I just wasn't really spending any money. So like all that money I was saving up. So, um, that was giving me a good cushion. And then, you know, I also had money saved up because when I was back at West Point, I, they give us your junior, you get a $32,000 loan at half a percent interest. And, uh, the year I got that was 2008. So I invested that. And anyway, so it's, it's just been growing since then. And so I had like, you know, just, I was setting myself up well, which is why I don't necessarily want to poo poo all the hard stuff I've done before that I didn't necessarily like, cause it has afforded me the life that I had today. And, um, in some ways I would encourage other people to maybe even take the same path if they wanted to get to this point. But, um, but now I don't want to do any work that I don't want to do. So it doesn't even matter if it pays really well. Yeah. Like that's Good my new you. thing. It's just yeah. whatever's in alignment, that's it. So, um, and I'm happy to slash my costs down if that means that I don't need to increase, you know, the revenue in order to sustain yeah. it. Um, but yeah, so now I actually quit, I, I quit my job, um, at McKinsey a little over a year ago. And I, that <laughs> I got to that point just because I, I thought that I would have to know what my next step was and I couldn't quit until then. And I was just waiting for my next step to like magically appear. I never even applied to any other jobs when I was there. Like it didn't even, I, I couldn't think of anything I wanted to do. It all just seemed like a death sentence. And so, um, but it, at a certain point I just realized, wait, I could just leave. Like I got enough money saved. I'm going to be fine. I believe it's going to be okay. I've met enough people on the road who are, you know, not working at like these top companies and getting these salaries and they're actually thriving. So, and some of my friends even went the creative route, getting paid a lot of money to do, you know, <laughs> spreads for Nat national geographic and things like that. And just, I've just realized anything's possible. So yeah, I quit my job. But then a month later, a friend came out of nowhere and said, um, oh, do you want to like maybe pick up this job that I'm about to leave? And I was like, no, I'm good. Like I'm unemployed, homeless and free for the first time in my life. And I'm going to enjoy this for as long as possible. 
And she, and she was like, well, you know, it's 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 really easy. <laughs> it's like compared to the McKinsey world, because she, she had also been at McKinsey. She'd been at Wharton and she'd gone to West Point. And she said, oh, this is not going to be like McKinsey. It's part time. Um, and it was MBA admissions consulting. And so pretty much that's what I've been doing for the last seven years for free. Like anyone, mostly veterans who had been reaching out to me and just asking, hey, can you look at my resume? Can you look at these essays or do a mock interview for Wharton or something like that. I'd be like, of course, like so many people help me. Um, and so essentially she was like, yeah, it's basically exactly that, but like you just get paid for it now. Um, and I thought, oh, okay, well, I guess I could do a job like that, you know, just keep on making it so I don't have to stress about money, but I'm only doing something that I would have literally done in my free time for free anyway. So that's been the job that I've done part-time since then, but or for, for the last year or so. But the, the thing is it's, um, yeah, it just, it doesn't, when, when people ask me like, what do you do? <laughs> I Like that job is not even on the top 10 list of things that I feel like I do. Like I live in a van, I, I'm building a house right now. I'm learning about farming. I am, you know, I host this podcast that I just started, blah, blah, black sheep. And that's a whole creative endeavor with like a video component. I'm like learning new skills in all these different ways. I want to go to welding school with the rest of my GI bill. Like those are the things I feel like I'm doing. Oh yeah. And this thing is like, you know, I, I help people out and you know it just provides me some income and it's always going to be remote so no matter what it's not like oh they're going to change and be like all right get back in the office like, i will never get me personally i will never get back in the office me personally i don't think i'll ever even update my resume ever again or even like look at that thing like that part of my life is just in the past and now whatever you know i learned from there is like what i want to mine those little diamonds like for what i want to do going forward it's kind of like even all the overachieving in my past where there was a version of that that actually still hurt me as I got older, where I was doing painful, stressful hobbies, or I was, um, you know, had this armor that blocked me from getting close to people and relationships or even understanding myself. And I want to like keep the gifts of being an over insecure overachiever because like there's actually things you can accomplish for, with that type of mentality that can actually really work for you. But I just want to take that stuff forward, those diamonds and leave all of like the, the nonsense and the painful stuff behind. So, well, there are a lot of people out there nowadays. I think they're living more of the nomad lifestyle because of what happened with COVID they aren't and putting up with the corporate world anymore. Yeah. And they just, you know, they decided as long as I can get Wi-Fi or I can get a yeah. job that allows me to, you know, go around and doesn't require me to be in a brick and mortar building, I should say, and you can go wherever you want to go. That's what they're seeking at this moment. And then there are other uh, opportunities out there where families are buying vans. We've got some in our neighborhood where they bought them themselves and they take the whole family and they just like we had one that I think it was during COVID that lives across the street. They just got the kids in the, the car and took off west and I think they made it about to either Colorado or Wyoming or something like that and turned around and came back like you know Forrest Gump kind of thing so I think there are more people that are starting to explore life since mm -hmm. COVID so um, your podcast in doing the blah blah back, uh, black sheep it's more about that type of you know lifestyle uh, being creative talking to individuals who came from different walks of life had struggles and have found now ways in order to to find peace find mm -hmm. themselves 
right? That's a little bit more about what it's... Uh... Yeah. Yeah. Well, I called it blah, blah, black sheep because not, it's just me kind of not taking myself too seriously because that's what I used to do. So that's me blah, blahing. But the black sheep part, because I feel like I've been a black sheep at all these places that I've come from. I mean, I don't look like the normal soldier was the black sheep of my family, like told outright, that is who you are. Um, and even at McKinsey, I was like kind of a little too hippie, woo woo. Or even in van life, I was too corporate. It's just always like wherever I'm at, I'm like kind of the odd one, the odd one out. But, and I used to kind of feel you know, insecure about that or not really like that. And I was always trying to find ways to assimilate and fit in. But now I'm really celebrating that and realizing, oh, I love being a black sheep. It kind of means you can just, you're free to go do whatever you want once you really, you're already branded with this. You're going to be different. So just go do whatever you want. Um, but yeah, so, but it's not just me. Like now that I've been living this more authentic life over the last few years, I've actually made all these friends, I feel, that are doing their own version of living their best black sheep lives. And these are stories that like, I've, I've been like, wait, what? People are out here doing these things? And I just feel like more people, especially people from my old world, because I know how that brain thinks, because I used to be in that world. And so for me to get break out of all this stuff to get to this point, I mean, a lot, some people look at what I'm doing now, my old colleagues or peers or friends, and they're like, I think Sophie kind of lost her marbles or something. And then, but other people are like, there's a version of that that I really want to do. And so I want to help people understand like, you know, the only difference between someone who's doing, living their kind of crazy unconventional life or the person who's not is just the person who's doing it just decided they were going to go do it. And I think for people to see how they could possibly do it is it's helpful to kind of hear examples of how people transitioned. You know, we talk about this military transition. That's such a big one from that identity of soldier to civilian. But I think for me, like, you know, going from, you know, I, I kind of lumped the military and corporate Sophie kind of into the same bucket. It was like that transition from what I'm being told to do to what I'm creating now is that is a transition that was like really hard for me to wrap my head around. But I think there's so many versions of that with, oh my gosh, some of my friends and the things that they're doing. Uh, and I just want to bring those stories out too. So the podcast is going to be, the first several episodes are going to be a narrative thing to kind of describe the arc of my life and how, um, I ended up doing the things that I did and these decisions that I made along the way and to give people kind of an understanding of who I am if they don't know me personally. And then from there, it's going to turn into all these like maybe some will be solo episodes, but a lot of guest episodes. And I already got different friends who I've already actually interviewed two of my friends and um, some other people to come. So I just think these stories are so interesting and inspiring for other people to hear. And I think you're kind of parlaying that in a different way with uh, we talked about you just mentioned a little bit about the military transition and some of the struggles that are going on with individuals who leave. But we also um, kind of talked off air a little bit about how a lot of people don't really think about military transition when they're on, even though we're all going to do that at some point. Everybody. And, and, and instead, what ends up happening is you end up um, saying, hey, listen, if I only knew or, hey, you need to pay more attention, but nobody wanted to pay attention. If I went back to Sophie, you know, uh, right after uh, right after post deployment, you, you wouldn't have wanted to listen to what's going to go on after transition, but you're looking, you're seriously, you and another partner seeking opportunities to find ways for, for people to decompress, for people to find themselves and so to speak, and to make it part of the transition to the private sector that we're all going to face at some point. Yeah. Well, and that's been like a collaboration with my friend Kayla. 
she was one of my plebes at West Point. She was a freshman when I was a senior. And we both moved into vans in 2020. And as far as I know, we were the only West Pointers moving into vans. It was kind of just like a very small world. And so we were immediately meeting up in our vans in different places and sharing knowledge. And she was leaving her. uh, She was just getting out of the military at the time. Um, She, she, I mean, she and I both are living wild and free right now, but I've just kind of impulsively made several decisions that have gotten me to where I am. She thinks like three to four years out and before she makes any kind of decision. So when she was three years out of getting out of the army, she was at JBLM getting, you know, BAH and living in a trailer and just stashing all that money away so that when she got out, she would not have to work for years and she's still not working. Um, nice. <laughs> <laughs> that's the move. I mean, I didn't yeah. even know that was. I remember hearing about like, oh, you know, I'm at like some course, and like, oh, these NCOs are doing that because you know they're geographic bachelors and their families are back in their houses, and yep. this is what they have to do. And I felt kind of bad for them, but now I'm like, trailer life would have been amazing. Yep. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, so she did that, and now she's been, um, you know, sharing a lot of information about like trying to take all these very bureaucratic, not easy to navigate, you know, hearts in the right place, but all these, you know, military transition programs and like actually put them into English, explain to people what, you know, what, how to use them and, and all that. So she's got a blog and shares all of that, but she also has a YouTube channel. And we, we've just kind of talked so much about this, of how the same people reach out to us, the same people who follow me on Instagram, follow her on Instagram. And they send us the same stuff of like, Hey, I love what you guys are doing. I want to be doing this a few years. You know, I'm, I'm still at West Point, but this is what I want to do when I get out of the army or I'm in the army and I'm a few years out and I want to be doing something like, this. like how did you transition can we talk on the phone about it and i've done this enough times that we've realized like there is some there is some like area of whatever we're doing now like we we do have something to teach and share and um it's just funny because we're just a couple of van bums but whatever this is we're trying to figure out like how we can come up with something that helps you know any soldier who's like on the verge of getting out or maybe a year out or maybe even longer think about how they're going to make that transition into a life of meaning afterwards so it's not hey you're going to you're doing a cap or whatever they call it this mandatory sitting there no. and <laughs> Yeah, I know. Yeah. I know. It's Soldier so bad. for life program. It's yeah. so bad. Yeah. It's so bad. Yeah. The, you really just do that and then you get out um, and you're probably going to go be a contractor or you're going to go back to your hometown and go be a general manager somewhere. You're going to go um, into some civilian version of the trade that you were doing in the army. But I think there's there's that, it, there's so much more than that. And it should actually be how you know, returning to who you are as a human. And yeah, the the army has added new things to who you are, but like, who were you before the army completely broke down your whole entire personality and told you, built you back up into, you know, a carbon copy in some ways of, you know, everyone around you. And then, you know, you maybe went through some really traumatic stuff in the military and okay, now ACAP, see you later and you're done like no i there's there should be something and i don't know how to you know we haven't figured out maybe this is going to be in the next six months or year or so but um but yeah it'll be some type of way that people can think about that transition and really reconnect to who they are and whatever their purpose is and and kind of start from there instead of okay what's everyone around me doing i got to just figure out one of these paths if you can tie that into some way to the you know, the commanders, the the people who, the senior non-commissioned officers, whatever, that make a difference in mm-hmm. terms of coaching or mentoring individuals and figure out a program where you can get 
folks on active duty, not just to find you, but you've somehow incorporated that into the military lifestyle. That would be amazing because I think what's going on now is we still have the old, you know, the PT, you know, type of thing. You can't miss PT or you can't go on sick call or you can't do whatever type of lifestyle that's out there that's really outdated. And this, this type of thing would be very, very helpful, I think. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, if the Army wants to bring us on to teach part of ACAP. Yeah. <laughs> they would ruin it. They, yeah, yeah. Somehow they would. Yeah. Just like camping and skydiving. Oh, totally screw it up. Everything, even hiking yeah. you know, with all that gear. Yeah. But you got a lot of friends that probably graduated uh, in the same class year that are maybe 05, 06 right now. That's maybe, uh, you know, and they're like 20,000. I think it is what it is. Uh, P card uh, that you can go ahead and use. This kind of stuff is what's yeah. really available that and and should be sought out by commanders out there that's unconventional you know it's not going to the chaplain it's not looking for programs right. that are inside that's already available it's sometimes we got to go outside and find people who've gone through the similar um similar struggles and have found themselves and everything else and now trying to reach back to the community and help and i think that's what you guys are sounding like you're trying to do oh man if there was like just one soldier who like had a better transition from just something that i've shared with them personally or something like that would be that would just be huge. Yeah. So yeah, to be able to scale that out would be amazing. But uh, I guess we got to figure out what we're doing first. But you know, yeah. we'll pitch it to the army. <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll be on the lookout for that. So blah blah black sheep. Uh, you can find that out on all uh, the typical all the main ones: Spotify, yeah. Apple, and Google. Okay. I, I realize some people do listen to Google Podcasts, and then YouTube actually because it's a video podcast. So, yeah. I mean, you could also just listen to it too, but. Yeah, well, I appreciate you driving all this way. I know you're kind of passing through, but stopping by, uh, giving us uh, some of your time to sit down with us and talk about your experience. And again, thank you so much. Oh, thank you for having me. This has been so fun.